Hey guys, it's Ed and I'm coming to you from the temporary Drunk Gossip Studios here in New York City. Um, yes, it's true. Um, we are... We've decided to get rid of the current um, studios and we're going to get a better one. Um, that's all going to be happening fairly soon. Um, and I know you guys are going to be like, what? We thought you already got the new Drunk Gossip Studios. Um, we did, um, but literally we just moved down the hall, um, from where we were, but now we're actually looking into, um, an actual recording space or at least something with, um, that'll help me sound better when I'm recording, um, and where we can record the vlogs a little bit easier. So I want to keep you up to date on that. Um, for right now... We have, um, I'm just going to demote the studios we're in to, to temporary. And, you know, who knows what's going to happen next. Um, and speaking of temporary, y'all know I don't watch reality shows. I think they're trashy. But, um, there was just some real housewife gossip that was too good to pass up. Um, it comes to us courtesy of Dave. He's the one who kind of um, sparked my attention to it. So thank you, Dave. Um, so first of all, Lisa Vanderpump skipped the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills reunion. And this is actually a really big deal. Um, without me mocking it or anything, like this is a serious matter. Um, the reunion shows are usually the highest rated of the season, uh, and it helps set up the storylines for the next season. So Lisa Vanderpump skipping is sending a very clear sign that um, she's not expecting to be back uh, for the next season. The only other housewife in Beverly Hills history who has skipped a reunion is Adrienne Maloof. And again, she was not invited back for the um, for any season thereafter. So that, you know, that on its own is pretty big. But Lisa Vanderpump apparently is not content just to leave the feuding to her possibly former Beverly, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills co-stars. She is taking her feuding across the country. Um, allegedly, she's feuding with Nene Leakes from Atlanta. Nene claims that she had the idea for Pump and Lisa Vanderpump stole it. I don't know. I That one I kind of have a hard time believing or dealing with. Mostly because Pump is right in the... In Vanderpump's wheelhouse. Like, she's a restaurateur. Um, her spinoff show is Vanderpump Rules, which is based in a restaurant slash bar. So, yeah. Um, but, we're going to look at her and Bethany Frankel now. And this this theory is almost a conspiracy theory, but it's really intriguing to say the least so 
a fan theorized that uh, Bethany Frankel spoke with Lisa Rinna, one of Lisa Vanderpump's former co-stars, and said, this is how you bring Lisa Vanderpump down. And they're citing an interview she did that Bethany did with Andy Cohen, I watched What It Happens Live, where apparently she said to Lisa Vanderpump's co-stars, if you're going to aim for Lisa Vanderpump, you need to make sure you take her down completely. And so the, the, the whole theory hinges on the fact that Bethany Frankel actually started this whole big feud between the Beverly Hills wives and um, she allegedly was just stirring the pot. Now, that's probably not the case at all. Let's be real here. The truth of the matter is probably far more simple and that Bethany has been a housewife for a very long time and she knows how the game is played. And that's probably what she was advising um, the Beverly Hills housewives. Like, you, if you're going to take down an OG, you need to boom. Uh, but it doesn't appear as though it's going to affect Vanderpump much. Um, fans are still on her side, mostly. And it it appears at least as though um, it at least it appears as though she is going to be sitting at least sitting out um, the next season. Uh, there are some people who are also saying, "Hey, look, you know, she lost her brother um, while this season was being filmed. That might have a lot to do with what's going on." And I think that's very much, um, that very much needs to be considered. Um, and also, the ratings are going to tumble without Lisa Vanderpump. I'm going to go and I'm going to be right back. And I'm back. So, I wanted to talk some Grey's Anatomy. I realize that the season finale has already aired and, you know, there's really no reason to talk about it right now. But Ellen Pompeo is just on fire. I mean, seriously. Um, girlfriend is not holding back. Um, she's giving the kind of interviews that I wish every star would. She's very candid, very um, in your face with it. You know, and it's, at once, it's really respectable and kind of, like, you start to worry about her career a little bit because you're like, girl, you're, no one's going to want to work with you. What you doing? And yes, of course, I bring out my Detroit voice for that. Um, <laughs> um, but... You know, one of the things that I think is rather interesting is she didn't even like working on Grace for the first 10 years 
and you know, I kind of feel the same way because I don't like watching Grey's. <laughs> she says that for the first 10 years, it was very toxic, very, um, uh, she called it a disaster behind the scenes. Um, here's what she says. The first 10 years, we had serious culture issues, very bad behavior, really toxic work environment. But once I started having kids, it became no longer about me. I need to provide for my family. Which, you know what? Whatever you think about Ellen Pompeo, I know some of you love her, some of you hate her. I think that line right there is probably the most insightful and adult statement any celebrity has made in the at least the last 50 years. You know, she. it would be easy for her to walk away. It would have been easy for her to walk away after eight seasons, to be honest with you. Um, there was nothing keeping her there. She had more than enough money. Um, but she kept going because she wanted to keep providing for her family. And what a lot of these stars, including her former co-star Katherine Heigl, don't realize is... TV success doesn't always translate to movie success, nor does it always translate to other TV success. Um, Matthew Perry from Friends is a great example of of this. His movie career is literally non-existent. And only one of his shows post-Friends made it past season two. And that was just barely. Um, I think the odd couple... The second season was like 13 episodes, I think. And then the third season was um, 10 to 13 episodes. Um, So Ellen Pompeo knows. But what's even more interesting... um, Is she kind of starts to hint at who the troublemaker was. Um, she said after season 10, there were some big shifts in front of and behind the camera. It became my goal to have an experience there that I could be happy and proud about. Because we had so much turmoil for 10 years. My mission became this can't be fantastic to the public and a disaster behind the scenes. Shonda Rhimes and I decided to rewrite the ending of this story. That's what kept me from leaving. And then... Here's where it gets really juicy. She said, Patrick, Dimpe- Patrick Dempsey left the show in season 11, and the studio and network believed the show could not go on without the male lead. So I had a mission to prove that it could. I was on a double mission. So for those of you who don't recall, Patrick Dempsey was fired from Grey's Anatomy not even halfway through season 11. And that really... Um, and speculation about his exit actually came a lot sooner than that. Um, so... They had to have had this planned um, at the end of season 10, at the very... at the latest, if not sooner. Um... Because 
the thing about the Shonda Rhimes set is nothing leaks. You don't know shit. And the fact that we knew that Patrick Dempsey was leaving means something. And it means something because, let's face it, um, you know, when it's just one of those things where you just know. It would be like if I told you, oh, hey, the secret identity of the, of the guy I like is, and then named him, you would know that there's something wrong, that the, there isn't something quite right about that. Because I've never once said, you know, the guy I like is blah. So, um, and it seems very odd that she would bring, she would talk about how it was very toxic until season 10. And then how, you know, it was her mission to prove that the show would live on without Patrick Dempsey and flourish, which it really has. So I'm going to go and I'm going to come right back. And I'm back. And we just talked about Ellen Pompeo. We're, now we're going to talk about Taraji P. Henson, whom I love and adore. Um, and I forgot to mention this in the last segment, but um, both of these segments, both of these stories come from the same interview. Variety does a um, a, a special feature um, around this time of year called Actor on Actor. And Ellen Pompeo and Taraji P. Henson were um, paired up. I'm thinking that this was because this is basically because they're under the same corporate umbrella now, but I definitely could be wrong. Maybe they had always planned it. Um, but in any case, Taraji, before she um, started on Empire, started on a CBS show called A Person of Interest. And um, I'm going to let Taraji tell her story, and then I'm going to tell you about some of the blinds that I remember about this, actually. So Taraji said that um, while she was doing the show, she just didn't love acting anymore. Um, and she says, I had to leave a show before. And it was the most money I'd ever seen in my life, and I was so miserable. It was stealing my joy. I just remember praying to God, God, I'm not happy creatively. The next day, I called the producer. He got it, and I walked away, not even knowing where I was going. I ended up doing a play in Pasadena. Um, And while, uh, as you'll see, she, or as you hear, rather, she never named Person of Interest as a show. However, two weeks after she left Person of Interest, she booked a um, she booked a play called Above the Fold in the Pasadena's Playhouse. And she said, she goes on to talk a little bit about the play. She said, I didn't care about who was coming to the theater, executives or casting directors. It was about Taraji falling back in love with this craft. Fox had to woo me to do Empire. I wouldn't read the script. I was done with television. 
Um, and she, um, well, a quote she said before when she actually left the show, she said, we always knew it was going to happen, so it wasn't a surprise. It was just about when. But yeah, I found out on Valentine's Day 2013. I don't think I'm there in my career yet when I write out a show until the wheels fall off. I'm still about getting, I'm still getting calls by big time movie directors and I still have a lot of movies I want to do. So that was always the plan. I don't want people to think that we had some kind of argument or there was a falling out. No, 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 no. We're all on the same page and it's all good. Um, that's what she told TV Line back in 2013. Um, and here's where I'm going to segue into telling you some of the blinds from around that time. Um, Crazy Days and Nights had one. Um, and again, I mean, this was six years ago, so I don't quite remember the um, the exact... Um, I don't remember the exact wording of the blind. But basically... There was a huge, uh, she had a huge issue with the fact that um, CBS had put out a poster um, of the two men and left her completely out of it. Um, And this was not the first time that that happened. Um, A lot of her storylines were either cut short or completely revamped and given to the men and uh, she kept fighting and fighting and fighting and eventually she just gave up and said fuck it I'm done another blind I remember from that time um, I think it came from blind gossip and she basically it was kind of the same thing where she she was just having such a hard time on the show and the ratings were starting to fall and they wanted to do something shocking so basically they said well we're not going to get rid of the guys we're going to fire you even though she was the female lead and um, possibly the most popular cast member um, at the time, the insinuation was um, it was a racist and or a misogynistic thing. But if she's being truthful and candid about um, not being happy, perhaps it was more of a, um, I don't want to say catering to her, but giving her more of a, um, a way out without feeling guilty about it. And speaking of ways out, I'm going to take a break and I'm going to be right back. And I'm back. So, one of the things that I've really been um, thinking about lately is Pulp Fiction. Not the movie starring John Travolta. Um, But back in the early 1900s, there's a genre of a, a literary genre called pulp and it was basically exaggerated it was um a lot of it was crime and it was just really super duper exaggerated um really um 
I don't want to say the quality was bad, but um, the writers were paid to write um, 25,000 or more words a week. And if you think that doesn't happen now, let me tell you, it does. Um, some of the serialized romance novels that you buy on Amazon or um, any of these other self-publishing sites, there's probably a writer out there who made just a little bit of money. Um, I think the most I ever made doing doing that was like $80 for... Um, $80 for like 25,000 words. Um, yeah, on Upwork, they really screw you. That's why I don't recommend it. Unless you have a client, like a an ongoing client. Um, and you're getting a decent, decent wage. Um, and, and truth be told, I actually... I, I made a lot of money doing it. But it's because I can write fast. And um, as I said before, I don't edit. I just write... And I'll go back and look for commas and things like that. But um, with Pulp Fiction, the more you could pr- the more you could produce, the more you could make. So there were some writers getting really rich off of this idea um, of just mass producing these books. Um, you know, and again, it's kind of we're kind of falling back into that same pattern now. Where, if you want to write a cozy mystery series, um, it's suggested that you have at least five or six books done and three or four in the hopper ready to um, publish. And you have to be ready to publish every six weeks. Uh, That seems a little excessive to me, but um, that's what a lot of people recommend. Uh, and, And the same thing with romance. So why am I talking about this? Well, y'all know I'm a big fan of Apple News Plus. Because I get to read all these magazines for free. Well, not for free. For 10 bucks a month. I read my Entertainment Weekly. I read my People. Um, and now they've added the writer to it. And so I was... And since I try to um, stay up in my industry and know what's going on, I was reading a this article about pulp and how it's making a comeback. And, you know, one of the things um, that Natalie said about my writing is it's very pulpy. Not in a negative way, um, but, you know, my heroes are exaggerated, my villains are exaggerated, especially in one of the short stories I asked her to read. Um, And, you know, the twists are really outrageous. Given that I'm a soap opera fan, I don't think that that should really shock anybody. Um, But as I started thinking about it, I realized I'm probably the new modern pulp pulp writer. Because I really can. Um, Meredith, who you guys will hopefully meet one day... If I can never get her to co-host with me. Um, Meredith is always amazed because I, you know, my true crime articles, I just knock out of the park. 
if there's six, seven hundred words and I can do three or four in a day, um, on top of writing my fiction and whatnot, um, one day during Shut Up and Write, um, which is a, one of the writing groups that I'm in charge of, I finished the complete first part of a serialized erotic novel. And it just blew her mind. And none of this is to brag, um, even though it sounds very braggy. Um, But it it is to say, like, this is something that's really starting to make a comeback. And I think um, publishers are starting to notice. Um, I can't think of the, the, um, the print's name. I think it's called, like, Hard Crime Something. Like, Hard Crime Stories. Um, and they're very much in the business of, of pulp. Um, Stephen King has written two or three books for them. Um, and a lot of the really big authors, but Stephen King is by far the, the most popular um, that's written for them. His book, Joyland, which I think is becoming a movie or a TV series, um, was written for them. And, you know, and I actually did read Joyland, um, just because I was really curious about it. And, you know, it's very much what you would expect a pulp book to be. And, so, you know, as I read it, I started thinking, like, I could do this. And then Will and I were talking... And there's actually a sub-genre of, of pulp called Train Pulp. Now what Train Pulp is, is it's a book that you read on the train. Um, he mostly reads on his phone. And so when he's commuting in and out of the city, you know, he'll read that. He'll read something. Um... And so then I started thinking, well, I think that's a really interesting concept, to be honest with you. Like, how do you know? You know, like, how do you know what train pulp would be? How do you know what just regular pulp is? You know, and is there, like, a a, a plain pulp? Is there a... And there is. Harlan Coben wrote, um, um, oh, I cannot remember what the title of that book is. I'm blinking right now. This is, this is one of those times when I should say that, um, Will, Will is right, but, you know, not gonna happen. Anyways, he, I mean, just his writing style, period, but this particular book, um, was about um, a guy who promised his girlfriend that he would never try to find her. And then, oops, he goes and tries to find her. <laughs> Big surprise, right? Um, and it was just one of those things where if you know anything about Harlan Coben, then you know that he is very, very much 
a believer in throwing everything into the pot and seeing what sticks. Um, and in this book, you can really see uh, that really shines through because it starts out where he just figures that the ex wanted to run off and be with another guy. And then it kind of takes a left turn and um, she was never married to the guy and then he thinks it's a cult and then he thinks it's this and that and it's just this wild conspiracy ride. And and this is no exaggeration. I, re- I started reading it um, on my flight. I was, com- I was leaving San Diego, coming home to New York and it was like four or five hundred pages and in that four-hour flight, I finished the entire book because that, that's just how good it is. It really grabs you. And as I was thinking about it, I was like, yeah, this is very much pulp. This is um, probably the very definition of pulp. So, I'm going to go and I'm going to come right back. And I'm back. <clears throat> and we're going to talk some Jesse Smollett now. And so one of the things that um, happened is Jesse Smollett's record has been unsealed thanks to a Freedom of Information Act um, Act request. And we're getting a treasure trove of the investigation and whatnot. Um, That's including um, 2,000 pages of documents that were released... uh, earlier in June, or later in May, sorry. Um, my mind's a little fuzzy right now. <laughs> and then on June 5th, there was um, the 911 call that Frank Gatson made. Now, Frank Gatson is Jesse Smollett's creative manager. I don't know what kind of bougie shit that is, but that's what his is. And in the 911 call, it's a little interesting. Um, there's, there's one part that kind of is sketchy to me, but let's hear what he has to say. He said, I work with an artist. I really don't want to say his name, but he states that redaction. He went to Subway. He was walking by and some guys somebody jumped him or something like that and I just want to report it and make sure he's all right and okay concern friend concern you know colleague concern manager because he doesn't want his gravy train to dry out because whatever (laughs) I I really couldn't think of what to say there and it shows um but, you know, the, the money train, you don't want to derail that because he gets jumped or something. So, all right, you know, that's all good. Um, but here's the operator asked why Jesse didn't call himself. And he said, he was cool. He didn't want me to call you guys. All right, so that's a little sketchy, okay? Let's be real here. I mean, I get it. Um, living in New York... You don't call the police for every little thing that happens. Um, 
But if someone jumps you or tries to jump you, then yeah, you, you call the cops. Um, you know, I think I've told this story before. Uh, I was on the phone with one of my friends who had just broken up with his boyfriend. And I was walking and, yeah, first of all, you guys need to know I'm a little bit clumsy, which I'm sure you've heard when I've like stubbed my foot or something and I say fuck under my breath. <laughs> so I felt something hit the back of my head and I said, ow, I just hit my head on something. And my friend was like, dude, only you. And then that's when the guy said, give me your phone. And I kicked him in the balls and I went running. I didn't know that there was actually four of them at the time. Um, but my, my first instinct was to run and then I went straight to the cops. And the cops were a little perturbed because I should have stayed there. But, you know, you live and you learn. Um, so... And this, you know, in this case, it is a little odd that Jesse didn't want to go to the cops. Um, and then the operator said, you know, the victim is the only one who can make a report. And Getson said, he's definitely going to make the report. I'm going to make him make the report. And then, and then he said that Jesse didn't need medical attention. He said, I think he's just, scart- he's just startled. I'm scared, and I don't know what it is. They put a noose around his neck. They didn't do anything with it, but put it around his neck. That's pretty fucked up to me. Sorry for saying it like that. And the operator said she was going to alert the police, which she did. And here's where... Okay, so the... You know, the sketchy part is that Jesse didn't want to... Jesse didn't want to call the cops. I don't know. That just doesn't sit right with me. Um, neither does... Um, someone else making the 911 call. You know, I know it happens sometimes. And especially if you're on the phone with someone and, you know, you're being attacked. You may not always have the presence of mind to call the police or whatever but there just seems to be uh, for me there's a disconnect there you know um you you know after my incident I called Dave you know I'm sobbing hysterically um I called my then boyfriend I was sobbing hysterically but never once did I ask them to call the cops for me and without a doubt in my mind, both would have. Um, just because that's the type of men that they are. Um, but in my mind, I had to be the one to relay, do it because I had to be the one to relay the story. Because I had details that they wouldn't have. And that's why I'm really confused as to why Jesse had his manager call. You know what I mean? It doesn't make sense. And here's where it gets even more um, cloudy. So the operator had said that she was going to alert the police. 
And then 16 minutes later, uh, Gadsden called back. And he said, I reported I've been waiting on, on the police. I thought they'd be here by now. And as soon as the cops showed up, Gadsden ended the call. So, here's where I'm getting kind of confused. Jesse didn't want the cops called. Then, Gadsden got impatient because the cops weren't there right when he wanted them to be there. Again, there's a huge disconnect. Um, and you know, maybe it's just me. Maybe there's no, Maybe there really is nothing sketchy. <laughs> And I will be the first one to admit that there could be, um, this could all just be something in my mind or something that I'm overthinking. It wouldn't be the first time and it definitely won't be the last time. However, I, I just really feel like there's something very, very sketchy about this whole thing where, you know, how do you go from A to B? You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't really make any kind of sense to me. He doesn't want the cops called, but you call him anyways. You don't want medical attention or anything like that. But you want the cops to show up at the snap of your finger. And in a smaller town, maybe that could happen. But Chicago is like New York or any of the other big cities. The police are stretched thin as it is. And why are they going why are they going to rush to help somebody who clearly said that he doesn't want emergency help? You know, emergency help should be um emergency help should be Reserved for those in an emergency. It it seems fairly simple to me. Um, Maybe I'm missing something or maybe maybe I'm wrong. And trust me, I will hear about it if I am. um, And not wanting to make a report... I, I could almost make an argument that you wouldn't want to make a report... Um, either A, if, um, because you wouldn't want want it to get out into the press, but that's not what happened. Jesse made sure it hit the press and blew up big, including doing the sit down with Robin Roberts before he was a suspect in allegedly, um, in allegedly... Um, faking the attack and wasting um, taxpayer time or uh, police time and taxpayer money. So I don't know. Um, obviously, we're gonna. Have, there's a whole lot more that's gonna come out, and I think we're finally gonna get the real story of what happened. And I just hope. That whatever the truth is, both sides accept it because I'm not. Here's before I go. 
there's always three sides to every story. My side, your side, and then the truth. And the truth is always some combination of um, my side and your side. You know, and that's just, that's just how it is. All right. Thank you all so much for listening. As always, I'm going to go, especially since the last two segments have totaled more than 20 minutes. Sorry. Um, Thank you all so much for listening for real, though. And until next time, cheers. Cheers.